I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and managing director of Zucas Consulting Group, Christopher Zucas. His new book is Directory of Federal Prisons, the unofficial guide to Bureau of Prisons Institutions. Some were model citizens until they weren't. Many of the participants who stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th are now facing the consequences of their actions, including the likelihood of serving time in federal prison. At least some of them, who may have never crossed swords with the justice system before, won't be prepared for what's ahead, says Christopher Zukas. His firm provides assistance and advice to people already in prison who are about to be incarcerated. He himself served a dozen years in federal prison, earned a bachelor degree and master's degree while behind bars. So much of the advice he gives his clients comes from personal experience. He's been interviewed by the Washington Post, USA Today, The Daily News, The Hill, CNN, and other many more media outlets. Welcome to the show, Christopher. Nice to have you on. Thanks for having me. So, very interesting. Okay, you were in prison for, what, 12 years Yes, So, obviously, I don't have to ask you what the inspiration for your book has been, uh, but I think specific, we want to talk today specifically about, okay, what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, and as you say, many of the participants have no idea or have never been in prison, don't know what happens in the criminal justice system, um, so... You're here to tell them that this, there's a lot to be, a lot of information that they need to know if they end up in prison or in federal prison, to be specific, right? Yes, ma'am. It's, it really is quite a, a, a different culture that I think that is really foreign to, to many people. I think it's hard to conceptualize from the outset. When you, I, I guess the question is, well, first I want to know, I want to go back a little bit, maybe. I want to start with this. You were in prison for 12 years. What were you in prison for? Why were you in, in, uh, in prison? Why were you behind bars? Sure. So um, as a senior in high school, um, I had downloaded uh, underage pornography. So people around my age, um, but with that being said, some of which were underage as well. And then what happened? Because the, that's a long time to be... Put behind bars. It is. It is. It's, you know, I, I, I make no bones about it. Um, I certainly, at, at the time I was, I was, I was a bit younger. I was not making the best decisions. Um, many of those decisions were more alcohol and substance abuse oriented. Um, unfortunately, you know, this kind of falls in line with the <clears throat> so brief brief bit of history. So you have both state and federal criminal justice systems. Um, In our country, these state systems tend to be a bit more lenient on the sentencing side than the federal system does. So the federal level, I think many people have heard of uh, mandatory minimums, for example. So mandatory, uh, so sentences that have a, a, a required floor. So while we've done away with many mandatory minimums, um, there are these sentencing guideline ranges that they don't require judges to sentence defendants within them, but it's fairly typical that they get sentenced within them. So for charges such as that, the like the typical range tends to be extremely high. So it's 
it's quite a thing. And I, I think it's, you know, when you tie this more into the capital riders, you know, it's always interesting watching like what charges exactly the U.S. Attorney's Office likes to bring. Uh, so, for example, we're starting to see charges that are more concerned with like defacing public buildings, uh, whereas we're not necessarily seeing charges that deal with, you know, uh, attempts on like the, the president or attempts on like senators' lives. So it's always it's kind of interesting looking at that because depending on what charge is levied, that strongly indicates what sentence will bring. Okay, so given that, what in this case, what are you seeing? What's the trend that you see in terms of the sentence and where these people may or may not end up? So this is this is actually a, a weird position to be in because with a lot of the work that I do, it's very defense-oriented. So I'm, ve- I'm typically arguing for you know, sentence mitigation. But in this circumstance, it's rather odd because... Typically, let's use an example. So typically, when you have a larger conspiracy to engage in some kind of misconduct, um, you see that the the feds will, or whatever federal agency that it may be, will conduct a longer investigation. They'll come out with a single indictment that will have multiple co-conspirators. So in a a typical large-scale conspiracy, that like you see in this day and age, you would see, for example, a conspiracy to distribute crack cocaine. Um, And then they would have, you know, five, 10, or maybe many more co-conspirators all charged together. And then as long as the conduct for each person, I mean, conspiracy law is a bit bit complex, but basically any reasonably foreseeable action of any co-conspirator can be attributed to the other co-conspirators. So if you, let's use a, a simple example, bank robbery. So four people decide to engage in a bank robbery. One of them brings a firearm. No one else knows that there's a firearm. They go into the bank, they rob the bank. Um, one person with the firearm shoots someone and they die. That, that killing can be attributed to everyone uh, within reason because it is a reasonably foreseeable outcome. It's rather odd to me that the U.S. Attorney's Office, kind of with that understanding in mind, would choose to charge the, the insurrectionists you know, with such light charges, such light sensing. I mean, there, there were deaths. I mean, this is a, a very serious criminal, I don't want to call it a criminal enterprise, but it, it really, it, it's not an ongoing criminal enterprise, at least it doesn't seem to be to me, but... It was a single focal point where numerous people were involved, where there was communications, you know, where there was planning, there was coordination. It just, it strikes me as very odd that we would select this group to treat so leniently compared to the run-of-the-mill criminal defendant in a conspiracy. Um, yeah, very strange to me. Okay, so, well, given that, okay, so what would the Capitol riot or insurrectionists or whatever we want to call them, the ones who are arrested, tried, and convicted, what do we ex- what can we expect? Because uh, th- isn't that what your work is all about? Having people have an understanding of what to expect when they go to a, a federal prison. But given that, also, some people might say, well, why should we care? 
you know, they, they are, they're arrested, they're convicted. Why do, why should, you know, they're going to be punished. Why do we need to care about that? Sure. I think, I think it's important to look at this from two different, through, through two different lenses. So, for the defendants and their families, it, I think it's critically important for them to know what to expect before they get there, because adequate planning, you know, much like anything else in life, you know, the more you can plan, the more you can know, the better you can get through a situation. So in my work, I view this as building an informational framework from which to make good decisions. And the problem for many of my clients, especially clients who uh, haven't had any experience with the criminal justice system before is that typical reactions, kind of the, the norms and mores of kind of daily life outside of prison are very different from those in prison. But to your, to your other question about why should we care, to the other lens I look at this through too, I think that it is critical to, you know, the, what the sunlight, the great sanitizer. You know, when you think of, <clears throat> sorry, when you think of the criminal justice system, you think of correcting, you think of fixing people. And I think that's such a misnomer compared to what actually occurs in prison. I think the, the larger hope, or at least, you know, it's almost like a, the larger kind of erroneous hope is that, you know, when people come out of prison, they won't do whatever they did to get in prison. They won't do it again. But I think it's critical to, from an academic perspective, and from a, you know, criminal, a criminal justice perspective, to show what really occurs. Because I think prison systems largely just hurt everyone more. You know, you could think of it as a public safety orientation. But I, I think it's not a big stretch to say that prisons actually hurt not only the people who go to prison, but society at large as well by further hurting damaged people who come out and do more damaged things. Also, you're talking about the people who come out and they hurt society as well. Also, their own families are involved. It's not just the person who's going to prison, usually. There's a lot of other people who are an intimate part of that person's life. And so they're going to be involved in the the whole prison system also, if only peripherally, right? Of course, you know, we, you know, families are always, prisoners' families are, okay, let me, let me declare, I mean, there are victims of crime, but then in terms of the defendant, there are these, there are hidden victims. There are these collateral victims that we never really think about. And those are people's moms, dads, you know, that's their, their close, their family, their friends of those who go to prison. You know, it's one of the very hard things for many of my clients um, that I think, We've, I focus a lot of time on preparing the person who's getting ready to go in, but it seems just to lack the support for those who are close to them. So like when I have a, uh, especially with younger defendants who get longer sentences, I mean, this can be crippling to parents. I mean, it's, just, it's very difficult for them to deal with, but even more broadly, I mean, and I don't think, I mean, obviously this doesn't apply to, you know, every city in town, but there are some areas, um, for example, out of DC, where you guys are out of DC, that it is just so incredibly likely for certain populations to go to prison. It just decimates communities. I mean, it's, it's not that, 
how do I frame this? It, it's not that you know the criminal justice <clears throat> the criminal justice system in and of itself is like destroying communities, but when you take enough people out, you know when you you start I guess broadly speaking, you start seeing a larger socioeconomic and cultural impact when kind of prisons become more the norm than the exception to the rule. One of the things that you also say is that one, we think maybe the general public, we think of prisons as a sort of a standardized experience, but that really isn't the case because, and I want you to address this, not all federal prisons are equal. Uh, And so talk to us, what does that mean? Not because, you know, as the, you know, as, as the general public, we may think that, you know, you go to federal prison, federal prison, and it's all the same. Not true. Not at all. So what, what you see is that every federal prison, and I, so I can, uh, I can speak more so to federal prisons than state prisons, but I, I would assume it's the same. But for federal prisons, every federal prison has its own unique culture, everyone. And the experience really goes along it's called two or three quadrants. So <clears throat> the, the simplest kind of level to interpret this is the security level. So at the lowest security levels, um, you tend to have more normal type of experiences. It's, it's not as big of a kind of a, a logic jump to understand the culture of that. Um, whereas at the highest security prisons, there are, or even rough or medium security prisons, <clears throat> it's really more akin to war. I mean, it's, it's completely foreign. Uh, it's a brutal, scary, and lawless environment, or at least it can be. Um, but what you also find is that it depends on where the prison is, too, because, for example, in the Federal Bureau of Prisons, so the federal prison system, what you see is that inmates who are housed in, like, the... Uh, Let's see, the western region, so the, the, the California areas, tend to be highly political from a prison politics perspective. Whereas if you're like in the southeastern region of the United States, it tends to be a bit softer. But I think it's well, also give us an example. When that, you say, yeah, one is highly politicized, you're talking about California as opposed to southeastern region of the United States. Give us examples. What does that mean? like in terms of behavior or in terms of the way you have to adapt to the prison system? So, you know, it's easy to say it involves everything, but it really does. One way that I've heard it likened to in the past is that the federal prison, for whatever the jurisdiction is, will be similar to the state prison system. Um, But in my mind, I think it's more, I think you have to look at this from a, more from a sociological lens. <clears throat> so what, a, what are the experiences of people and why are those their experiences and how do different groups kind of interpret this experience and how do they experience the experience? Because everyone's experience will be different. <laughs> Sorry to use the experience so many times. But for example, um, let's use Texas. So there's a prison in Texas called USP Beaumont. That's United States Penitentiary Beaumont, uh, which is a high security federal prison in Beaumont, Texas. So USP Beaumont's nickname is Bloody Beaumont uh, because it is an extremely violent prison. Um, Likewise, you have USP Victorville in Victorville, California, which has the 
infamous nickname of Victimville. I mean, that's on one end of the spectrum. And clients who have who are going to be serving time at those facilities, they have to they have to be prepared because the experience getting in is jarring, and staying there is is pretty uh, fairly brutal. On the flip can side, can you give you us have, an example by taking like because you just gave us two good examples, like starting. Mm-hmm person the first day incarcerated goes to the prison give us a day in the life of what happens when you walk through those doors in those two different cultures two different prison cultures sure well you know just to give a comparison point too you also have fpc alderson which is known as camp cupcake uh the same uh, prison that martha stewart went to um so the introduction to uh, higher security prisons tends to be a fairly, it's more akin to a crash. Um, someone goes through their, the receiving and discharge department, so they get processed into the prison system, they get assigned to a cell. Um, once they're, you know, as soon as they're walking through the door, other inmates are scoping them out. They're trying to figure out who is this person, what do they think they're in for, where are they going to fit in? Um, I mean, and then from that point, depending on their background, depending on, I mean, this is not politically correct at all, but depending on what race they are, or, you know, those are the kind of factors that other inmates weigh. And what you find is that at very easy places to do time, primarily minimum security federal prison camps and low security federal prisons, um, it's a much friendlier introduction. So, you know, your, your cellmate comes up and says, Hey, what's up? You, you try to ask what bunk is your bunk. They point to your bunk and they ask, Oh, God willing, they would ask you, do you need anything? And, you know, one of your bunk mates, your flatmates would then be explaining kind of the lay of the land. Whereas at a more, uh, at a higher security prison, that's not exactly what you would get. Uh, you get what I think of as the convict uh, 411. So, you know, what are you in for? Where are you from? Did you testify against other people? You know, very, you know, have, have you done time before? Who can vouch for you? So, like, you find that at higher security prisons, it's much more like what would be, at least I would think of as a gang initiation, whereas at a medium, sorry, at, at a minimum or low security prison, uh, you would find it's more akin to, you know, meeting a college dorm mate. You know, you're not exactly sure if you're going to like them yet, but they are your dorm mate. So what are the ramifications of that? Like the first one sounds really scary. I guess it's related, obviously, if you're in a high security prison related to the, what you did, uh, I, I assume, um, in terms of the crime, right? And so are you protected by the security guards or how does that work? There's a, are you talking about the whole culture? How do the guards fit into the, the uh, inmates? What's the relationship Uh, so, uh, the the sad and scary thing is that when someone goes to prison, no one's there to protect them. They are their only and sole own protector. Um, it, it really is shameful um, in my mind because it's just, we take this thing, I mean, I, I don't know many who would agree that the criminal justice system doesn't need fixing, you know, regardless of what end of the spectrum you come from. But it's like 
if you treat people horribly, I mean, this is the think of the cycle of abuse. If you treat people horribly, if you, if you treat them as like fighting dogs, what do they learn? They learn, you know, antagonism. Um, they learn aggression. You know, this, these aren't the kinds of things that we want to be teaching people. Like I, I had this, I, I, I remember a couple of years ago, um, I, I had been on a, a different network um, and the host had, was being a bit frosty uh, and he was a tough on crime guy. And he was, we're talking about prison education. So specifically college and prison. And his point was, you know, I got to pay for my own kids to go to college. Why should I want to, you know, pay for some prisoners college? And kind of my retort to him was, well, your future neighbor can either come out with a college degree or high school diploma, whatever it may be, or they can come out learning how to brew prison wine really, really well. Um, and then as we kind of cut through it, you know, he was trying to, he was kind of underhandedly trying to explain to me how, you know, oh, he'll never have like a former prisoner who lives near him. Um, and the kind of the punchline of it was that, you know, prison touches all sectors of society. I mean, I have very wealthy clients and I have clients who I, I take on on a pro bono basis because I feel bad at what's happening with them. You know, it touches everyone, and we have to view this not as someone else's problem or someone else, you know, some other community's problem. This really is a, a global problem. You know, this is a problem that touches everyone. You know, and we need to we need to view this more from a, a public kind of health and compassion standpoint rather than a them versus us standpoint. That sounds a, like a very healthy attitude uh, for me, as I hear you. So what are the circumstances now? Let's take today, you know, what what services are available in prisons? Like, let's say we want to make it so that it, people have the opportunity to better themselves. And so when they get out, they are going to be better citizens. I mean, that's the goal. Um, and if they're not and they come out and they're more angry and, uh, and, and more violent or whatever the issue is, that's not good for society. I get that. So what kinds of services are available? really available to prisoners now? You know, you raise a good question. So uh, current pandemic times versus non-pandemic times. Uh, in pandemic times, um, service levels are virtually nothing. Uh, people are trying not to die. And that's just the, the plain blanket truth of it. Um, most inmates for over the last year for federal prisons have been either completely locked down or a modified lockdown structure where they're restricted to their housing units with extremely minimal time outside of the unit. You know, I, I believe the federal prison system is currently allotting, I think it's four or five days a week. They inmates can get up to 45 minutes a day outside. So it's, it's a rough thing, but in a non pandemic period, uh, what you're seeing is that inmates have some access to, basic rehabilitative services. Uh, typically, these are like group therapy programs. Um, unfortunately, uh, there tends to be extremely long waiting lists. Um, for example, that you generally can't earn a high school diploma in prison, but you can earn a GED, so the high school equivalency certificate. But most inmates who want that tend to wait a few years before they even get into a classroom. So I... You know, I, I try to look at this from more of an empirical standpoint. So <clears throat> what do we know? We know that most inmates, so within 
five years of release, the vast majority of inmates will have recidivated or returned to criminal activity. So we know this isn't working. We also know that we're spending astronomical sums of, sums of money to largely warehouse you know, millions of people. Um, in my mind, it kind of then begs the question of, you know, is the question about fixing those who have already done wrong? Is it about diverting future crime? Um, but clearly, I mean, there are good arguments and there are some good options within both of those spectrums. But clearly, in my mind, the, the current warehousing model this isn't working. I mean, it's unhealthy and it just increases the cycle of crime and victimization. So we need to think of not so much punishment, but rehabilitation. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, if you look at the, okay, so generally four principles of corrections. So you have deterrence, which can either be specific or general. So specific is, you know, I touch the hot stove, so I don't touch it again because it hurts. General would be, I see or I've heard of someone else has touched the hot stove, so I don't touch it because I hear it hurts. Um, so deterrence-wise, depending on the crime type, we seem to do an okay job at that. Um, incapacitation is the big one, which is uh, literally removing the offender from the ability, from society, so from the ability to commit crimes on the general public. Um, you also have rehabilitation and then you have retribution. So we do a, a very bad job with rehabilitation. We do a pretty good job at retribution, um, but we just, it, it's so consequence oriented, which isn't necessarily a bad thing as long as you give you know, offenders an opportunity to be able to fix what led them to the consequence or the accident led to the consequence in the first place, where we really don't seem to do that in our society. It's, it feels better to watch the wrongdoer punished and it does to welcome them back at the end of that, you know, or help them find ways to build from that. Um, and like, if we only do the thing that generally feels good, you know, seeing the wrongdoer punished or put through kind of trials and tribulations, then we're kind of forgetting that they return. And then oftentimes they do it again. And then, you know, to kind of take this a step further, they have kids and their kids follow in their footsteps. And it's, so it's not only just a, revol- a re- it's not only I have to hate to interrupt you because we only have a minute okay. left, but so but it, we don't want to create a revolving door and it's not just the revolving door. It's also it's generational. It goes from generation to generation if we don't resolve some of these issues. So my recommendation is to read your book, The Directory of Federal Prisons, because we, we covered some topics, but obviously not all of it. Uh, Christopher Zoukas, um Director, he's the author of Directory of Federal Prisons, the unofficial guide to Bureau of Prisons Institutions. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Just give us a website and or websites we can go to for more information. Sure. Um, so those who are interested in learning more can go to prisonerresource.com. Yeah, it's prisonerresource.com. Um, and thank you so much for having me. This, is, this has been a great chat. I love talking to people who come to this from more of a social worker a sociological point of view. Yeah. yeah. I'm on your team. Have a good day. Thank you so much. Thank you. You too. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 